received a text message very early this morning. It was from Pastor Steve. And it just said, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Preach with that liberty today. And I noticed it came really early in the morning. And I think he probably did that on purpose because it's about that time of day when a preacher gets up and he says, uh, it's time to rewrite. <laughs> this is all wrong. And so he wanted to give me some of that peace. But I think it's also indicative of the nature of, of being a pastor on some level. I realized over the years that as people would come into my office and they'd meet with me uh, and they'd ask for counsel or advice, uh, godly wisdom, whatever it is they might have been looking for, you began to feel this pressure that you had to have some great theological insight that you could hand to them and that would change the, the course of their life forever. And the weight of that would get heavy. Ministerial students in the jobs that we have here, ministerial students will come over and they'll sit in your office and they'll ask you questions about ministry. And sometimes you get to a place where you feel like you have to have these deep insights that will help them be powerful in the kingdom of God. And there's a way to that. And then there are days when you have to stand on a platform like this one, preaching to a lot of people who, with a lot of godly experience, and you feel like you have to have some deep theological insight, and the weight of that can be heavy. But I learned something significant a few years ago from tech support. If you're having problems with your computer and you dial up tech support and you get them on the phone, what is the first question they're going to tend to ask you? Tech support, my computer is just not working. I can't make it happen. Now, the person on the other end of this line has a lot of information. They know a lot about hardware and software and code and all the different things that could be wrong with your machine. But what's the first question that comes out of their mouth? Is it plugged in? And you look at the phone like, what are you, why are you asking me that? I'm not an idiot. One day I was sitting next to someone and their computer was not working. And they tried everything they'd known to do, and they called the company that manufactured the computer, and tech support gets on the line, and I'm only hearing this person's side, right? So I hear, hey, tech support, my computer's not working. It sounds like it's booting up, but I, you know, I just don't know what's happening. And I'm assuming the tech support person on the other end of the line said, is it plugged in? And of course, I saw the person sitting, look, yes, of course it's plugged in. And then tech support must have said, well, can you go ahead and check? So the person sets down the phone. They get behind the computer, and the, the tower is plugged in. You know, you can see the little green light. It's running. But then I noticed they looked up at the monitor and followed the cord. And guess what? Monitor was not plugged in. Plug it in. Boop. Monitor comes on. Computer's working like a dream. Pick up the phone. Thanks, tech support. Got it. Bam. 
as Steve and I were talking about this sermon series and we got to this particular message and he said, this is the message you're going to preach. I said, Steve, in my brain, I didn't say this to him out loud. I thought to myself, Steve, this is tech support. You're asking me to stand up in front of a bunch of people who know a lot about the scripture and ask them if their computer's plugged in. But over the years, I've learned that as people come into my office, one of the first questions I ask them is, how's your time with God? Are you reading your scripture? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you in solid Christian community? And so often, people will look at me <laughs> like they look at tech support, right? What a dumb question to be asking me. And then they'll say, well, I'm not really reading my Bible. I don't spend a whole lot of time in prayer, and no, I'm not in a group. But can you help me? And I'm constantly reminded of Jesus' words when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So I'm going to ask you the tech support question this morning. Is that okay? We've been looking at John chapter 9, the story of the man who was born blind. Everybody in town knew who he was. They recognized him, and all of a sudden he could see. And we realized that the recurring question throughout John chapter 9, hopefully you've been reading along, is what? How is it that you can see? You've been blind from birth. How is it that now you can see? And the man's response is the same over and over and over again. He says something to the effect of, this man you call Jesus. Or then he starts calling him a prophet. Or then towards the end he says, this one who I will worship. This man called Jesus made mud, put it in my eyes, and he said, go and wash. And... I went and washed, and I could see. He said, go and wash. I went and washed, and now I can see. And I, I got to believe me and a lot of the people I know would be sitting with this guy going, come on. That can't be it, right? Did, did he send you on some journey? Did you have to you know, memorize a bunch of scripture. Like, what, what was it that, why can you see? He told me to wash. And I went and washed. And now I can see. He heard the word of the Lord. He obeyed the word of the Lord, and he could see. Now, I could just stop right there, but, you know, I'm a preacher, so that, that's not going to work out. We heard in uh, Psalm 119, as, as we sang uh, that passage of Scripture this morning, I delight in your word. I think about it all day long. 
You hear this as a constant running theme throughout the Scripture. Hide this word in your heart. Meditate on it. Think about it as you walk along the road, as you lie down, as you stand up. Contemplation. Contemplate on the Scripture. He told me to go and wash. But what I noticed in the second part of that psalm, as, as, he, as the psalmist kept talking about, uh, I delight in your word, I, I'm, it instructs me, I begin to see differently. You, see, you hear all this language of, of how he's contemplating on the word. And then he, he makes this interesting statement that I was like, whoa. He said, I'm wiser than all of my elders. Did you catch that? As Daniel was singing that part of the passage, you catch, he said, I, was, I am wiser than all of my elders. And I thought, he's kind of cocky, isn't he? Why? Did you see the second half of that statement? He's wiser than all of his elders because because I obeyed all of his commands. A lot of us tend to lean one way or the other when it comes to our spiritual life, right? A lot of us are, are contemplatives. We like to sit out in the desert by ourselves. Or maybe we're just introverts, I'm not sure. We like, to, we like to get alone in solitude and quiet, and we like to listen for God and meditate on him all day long. We like the first part of that passage Others of us are in that bottom half. We like action. We want to do something. We want to make it happen. God has called us to do it, and we're going to do it. And very rarely do we make time for contemplation because we're so busy. And I think the Scriptures constantly are calling us to see how these two continue to inform each other. They continue to build on top of one another. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to obey if I never hear Jesus say, go and wash. I start doing the wrong things. But if all I ever do is listen and I never wash, I never see. And so the question is, how do we live this life of contemplation and obedience. And so I'm going to get real basic with you. First. I'm a practical person, so that's what we're going to do. Is that okay? How do I live this life of contemplation? One is I need to consistently be in the Word. I have to consistently be in the Word. Something I read 15 years ago is probably still meaningful to me but I have to be engaging in the Word on a regular basis as things are happening to me now. That's when the Word of God, which is alive and active, begins to interact with what is happening in my day-to-day. -day. And the Word comes alive as it partners with what is happening in my life. So there has to be a consistency there. 
Last week, Steve talked about the Scripture becoming our language. And one of the key things that we have to do in language is learn the words, the vocabulary. And so something that is exceptionally important that we've lost sight of, I think, in a lot of Christian circles is the act of memorization. When was the last time somebody asked you to memorize Scripture? You were probably in elementary school. In Sunday school class somewhere, they said you should probably memorize some Scripture. And for a lot of us, if that happened, that Scripture still sits back there, doesn't it? And every now and then, we'll come into a situation in life and that Scripture will show back up. And it'll inform what's happening. But when was the last time you practiced the discipline of Scripture memorization? If I want to learn a language, I have to be fluent in the words of that language. So memorization is important. It embeds the word into our life, into our language, into our interaction. And then we begin to pray Scripture. Have you noticed? This is probably just me, so if it is, then it's a confession. How about that? Have you ever noticed that when you're not, if I'm not praying Scripture, my prayers get real selfish? Anybody else been there? Anybody's time of prayer is just a whole bunch about what God, what I need God to do for me or for the people right next to me? God, help me, and, you know, if you've got some extra time, help that person too, right? Praying the Scripture, preferably Scripture we've memorized, praying the Scripture then begins to change the way we see the world, the way we interact with God in our times of conversation. And it changes our hearts and our minds, which lead to changed actions. So I would encourage you to engage in the praying of Scripture, Engage in times of solitude and times of community. You need both when it comes to reading the Scripture. You need times alone with God where God can speak to you specifically through the Word. And you need times in community, preferably with people who are different than you. They have different life experience. They have a different upbringing. uh, They're from a different place. And when you read Scripture with that person, all of a sudden you get to see it from another direction. This thing that may have been flat all of a sudden takes on dimensions and you can see it from other spots. We need to read it in solitude and we need to read it in community. And finally, we need to learn to study it well and ask good questions. If I approach the scripture simply saying, what is God saying to me right now? That's the only thing I ever ask. I miss a lot of what the scripture has to offer. Ask questions like, what does that mean back then? In order to understand parts of the Bible, you have to understand the whole thing. What did that passage mean then? Because words change, actions change, culture changes, and it was written in a specific time in a specific place. What is is the larger point of this passage? We heard from Luke chapter 10 this morning. And immediately following that passage of Scripture, we get this interaction between Jesus and a religious leader. And you're very familiar with it. This religious leader comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what does the Scripture say and how do you read it? There's an interesting response that you could spend a whole lot of time with, but we're not going to do that. 
What does the scripture say and how do you read it? And this religious leader knows the scripture better than most of us in this room. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And how does Jesus respond to him? You remember what he says? Do that. This isn't rocket science. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do that. Religious leaders' true motives come out, and he says, yeah, 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 but who's my neighbor? And the story that follows is the Good Samaritan, right? The story that we've heard over and over and over and over again. And I think sometimes we've heard this story so many times that we get caught up in the minutia, right? Like, what's this priest deal? What's the problem with the Levite? What's the relationship between this traveler and the Samaritan? We get caught up in all these little details in the story, and we miss the end. Jesus gets to the end of the story. He looks at this religious leader who started the conversation, and he says, who was the better, who was the neighbor? And the religious leader, he's not an idiot. He says, obviously, it was the Samaritan. And what is Jesus' response? Go and do likewise. The religious leader had, compl- had contemplated the scripture all day long. He knew what it said. What does the scripture say? How do you read it? He had that answer. But he couldn't move down to obedience. And friends, if our contemplation never leaves our private life, It's not taken hold of us the way it should have. Because the truth of the matter is, as we read the scripture, it's going to challenge our way of living. Because God's kingdom and God's way is a completely different way than ours. We have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus said, we are called to love the orphan and the widow. Not just the idea of caring for the orphan and the widow. We actually need to care for the orphan and the widow. And we've got to figure out what that means in obedience. We've got to wrestle with the fact that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Those people we want most to take revenge against. He's called us to love them and pray for them. We've got to wrestle with that. Jesus has called us to care for those who are in prison, to care for those who are poor, to care for the marginalized, care for the stranger in our midst. And somehow we have to wrestle with that. We have to move beyond thinking about it and actually obeying. And so what is God saying to you in your times of contemplation and how are you moving to obedience? And here's the interesting thing about obedience. Oftentimes, if someone wants to meet with me and they're really passionate about something here, right? They're passionate about caring for the, for the orphan. They're passionate about caring for the poor. They're passionate about caring for the stranger. And they come and meet with me What's happened is God has gotten a hold of their imagination. They took steps of obedience and it lit a fire 
And now they're moving back up to what does the scripture say about this and how do I get everyone else involved? And so the circle continues. We continue to say, okay, so how does the scripture inform what I'm doing? And then how do I obey? And then how does the scripture inform what I'm doing? And how do I obey? And it leads to a spiritual growth that is powerful and effective and, and impacts the world. Because there's a group in the story that we have to deal with. There's a group in the story that over the past six months or so, God has just kept bringing to my mind. He keeps putting them in front of me, and I'm wrestling with them. In this story of the man born blind, he regains his sight. And the only people who don't seem to be able to accept that Jesus is the one who gave him his sight are the people who should have seen it. They're the people who knew the scriptures the best. They were, they were the Bible people of their day. These religious leaders knew the scriptures. It's not that they didn't know it. It's not that they didn't read it. It's not that they didn't have it memorized. A lot of these spiritual leaders would have had the entire first five books of the Bible memorized. They could have just quoted it to you. And they were, they were a holiness movement. They took following the law seriously. They weren't messing around. And these were the ones who looked at Jesus and they said, well, obviously he's a sinner. It couldn't have been him. And over last summer, I was reading through the book of John with a group of men, and those Pharisees just kept popping up. Like, every week, there's another Pharisee. There's another religious leader, another teacher of the law. And God just tapped me on the shoulder saying, you've made those people out to just be plain villains. You ever do that? You read a passage, you read a book, you read whatever, and this person here is clearly the villain. And I'm not that person, right? We never identify with the villain. But I got to be honest with you. As I read this passage, I have to believe that the religious teachers, the Pharisees, would have sat in this congregation as I preached the first half of this message, and they would have been nodding their head, waving their hanky, shouting amen. We don't do that here. We'd ask them to leave probably, but that's what they'd have been doing. So why is it that these religious leaders who seem to know the scriptures better than anyone else had missed it? Because I think like some of us, they would have read 1 Peter 3.15 the same way we often do. It's that passage that says, always be ready to give an account for the hope that you have, right? Like, 
So often I hear that verse used in a way that says, you got to have your doctrine lined up. Have your scripture memorized so that you can go to war. Right? So that you can argue somebody under the table. You can argue them down. When, the, when it comes out, we're ready. You know what the context of that passage is? Peter's writing to a group of people who are being persecuted. They're being killed for their faith. And he's saying to them, in those situations, be people of joy, be people of hope, be people who are so connected to God that, that when trials come, you have a hope and joy that is beyond explanation. And it's at that point when someone asks you about the hope that you have, you have an answer for them. This is not about arguing someone under the table. It's about your life, your obedience being such that someone can't help but say, why are you so different? And it's at that point you get to share about the hope and the joy of Jesus Christ. And so this week, as I wrestled with this group of, of religious leaders, uh, and I tried not to say, you know, I'm not that guy, uh, God just kept pointing me back to the overall drama of Scripture, to the overall picture of what he is doing in the world. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky to separate the day from the night. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. And God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good Everything that we see, everything that we can know, taste, touch, measure, all of it was created by the spoken word of the Creator. God speaks, and the way the world is supposed to be comes into being. Humanity decides they want to be like God. So they rebel. They start to build a tower to reach to the heaven. How ludicrous is that? And yet, how often do we do it? They start to build a tower and they say, we will be like God. And God said, that's not good. And he separates them and confounds their language. And now they're pitted against each other. And it's at that point that God reveals himself to Abraham. And he speaks to Abraham. And he paints this picture of his descendants who will be like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And he says, your descendants will be a blessing to the nations. God meets with Abraham and reveals himself and paints a picture of the way the world is going to be. 
Abraham begets Isaac. Isaac begets Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And his descendants begin to grow and multiply. And they find themselves slaves in Egypt. And they cry out to God, God, remember your covenant. And God comes down and rescues them. And they go out to the, to the desert. And God meets Moses on the mountain. And he reveals himself to Moses. And he speaks to Moses. And he gives him the law. He paints a picture of what the people of God will look like. This is what my people look like. This is how they act. This is how they interact with one another and with the world. And the people enter the promised land. And they start to become successful. And they decide, we want a king to rule over us. And they begin to align themselves with the powers that be. And they begin to lose sight that God was their one true king. And God reveals himself to the prophets. And he paints a picture. And he says, this is what will happen to my people if they continue to turn away from me. The people turned. And God speaks to the prophets. And he says, there is a king who is coming whose kingdom will be set up for all of eternity. And he paints a picture of the Messiah, the hope that is to come. On the island of Patmos, John finds himself worshiping, and God reveals himself. And John sees a picture of the world the way it should be. John sees a picture of what God is going to do when he sets all things right. And in the middle of all that story, God takes on flesh and dwells among us. And he comes and he paints a picture of the way the world should be through his teachings and his parables. He says, this is who my people are. And through his actions, as he heals the blind and the lame walk and those with sicknesses are cured. The good news is preached to the poor and the dead are raised to life and Jesus overcomes sin, death, hell, and the grave and we no longer have to fear. And when we enter the scripture, enter this story. This isn't just a work of the mind. This is a changing of our sight, a changing of our imagination. It's a glimpse into the eternal. We're walking on the same earth that Abraham, Moses, John walked. We serve the same God who gave sight to the blind and raise the dead to life. And when we enter into the scripture, we ask the Holy Spirit for eyes to see the eternal and hope for the future. There's nothing special about these pages and this fake leather, it's just a book. 
But when I come to this place in humility, laying aside my assumptions and crying out to God, Son of David, have mercy on me. I want to see. The divine encounters the ordinary and takes us to a place where the lame walk and the blind can see.